Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Great to have you with us. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area north of Baltimore. If you're nearby, come join us. For all the details, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Well, I'm throwing you a curveball this morning. I'd like to call your attention to Revelation, or Matthew 22. <laughs> We've gotten out. I love when God interrupts our plans. That's oh, the best. <clears throat> so, loved ones, I don't want to speak for anybody, but more than anything that this world has to offer, uh, I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant when I meet the Lord face to face. Uh, th- that's my heart's desire. Above all else, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And because that's my desire, and I know that's many of yours, <laughs> which is why you're here, <laughs> then when we come to passages like the one the Lord laid on my heart for today uh, from the book of Matthew, and we see Jesus so upset and with fake religious people (laughs) that yes, he is upset and and he's warning a specific group of people, but that also these warnings are also cautionary tales for us. We need to know that there is a warning in there for us, for all of God's people to not fall into the same evil, prideful trap of hypocrisy. Isn't there a few things less nauseating than a religious hypocrite? I mean, when you see a famous evangelical pastor or whomever, and then you see that behind the curtains they're monsters, isn't that the most disgusting violation? Uh, And Jesus felt that way you do, amplified. (laughs) And so Jesus today, he's looking at thousands of, 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 of religious teachers, and they're just hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach, and so Jesus is going to pronounce a series of woes upon them. And the woes he gives were recorded for us. They were recorded for the church so that we can see and learn and not fall into the same traps. Amen? Amen. So we're going to do one of my favorite things in the whole wide world, and that's to spend time in the gospel. So uh, again, if you want to turn with me to Matthew 22, we are going to pick up at verse 41. And for those of you that have been with me a while, it is a miracle. We are going to read a lot of verses today, and I'm not going to stop (laughs) after everything. Uh, so let's let's do this. A lot to cover. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, this is... <clears throat> let's just hop in. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. 
<laughs> Isn't that great? Don't mess with that guy from Galilee. I'll tell you that much. Jesus asked. He, he's in Jerusalem. He asked the experts of the law in the center of the law to please explain an Old Testament passage, and they fall apart. No one's able to answer it. And one of the reasons no one was able to answer was because Jesus was the answer. And since they rejected Jesus as the Lord, the son of David, they had no idea how the son of David could also be David's Lord. And really interesting, this is just days after the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday, where the people and the commoners called Jesus the son of David. So the ordinary people, they almost totally got it. And the experts have no idea. They're too smart for their own good. You ever met someone like that? They can't give you a yes or no. It's just the paragraphs of nonsense. Ugh. Ugh. I hate people. If you don't know, don't say you know. Just, I don't know. I respect someone so much that says, I don't know. Uh, and when someone goes on and on, it's like, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're phoning this answer in for a quiz. Yet the commoners know that Jesus is the son of David. But anyway, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's, he's in front of the greatest Old Testament expositors alive, and they don't have the slightest clue as to who the entire Old Testament was about, who it was building to. And now Jesus is just days away from being brutally murdered at the crucifixion. His hour is almost at hand. And now, now Jesus knows, okay, well, they're going to kill me in a few days. What am I, what's going to happen if I call him out? So Jesus, out of frustration, he just unloads on these experts. Let me tell you, Jesus would have been so canceled for this, for this message. He unloads. And how many Christians would have stood off in the corner? That's not very Christ-like. <laughs> Jesus. Don't be mean, Jesus. <laughs> we need a lot more men in our culture besides the point. Matthew 23, verse 1. Can you tell I'm excited about this? This is good. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So he's talking to the Pharisees, and now he does one of these. <laughs> and these, remember, he's got his, probably a sea of people following him and all his disciples and he said, and the scribes and the Pharisees, and then, uh, so then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. Jesus basically essentially just said, yes, the scribes and the Pharisees, they certainly know the Old Testament, but they do not follow it. Now, that's really interesting because they just didn't know the Old Testament that he said that. So we're going to keep going. Then he's, Jesus says, for they preach, but they do not practice. You ever heard that term? They, they uh, pre preach what you practice? Well, that's where it comes from. And here's the point. Jesus is not denying their intelligence. He knows that they know the Old Testament. What Jesus is pointing out here is that because they do not live the word of God that they know so well, because they do not live the word of God in a very real sense, they really don't know it at all. This is the great terrifying, maybe the scariest passage in all the scriptures for Matthew 7. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we perform mighty works in your way? And Jesus says, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you, you may have done mighty works. You may have known the, 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 you may have known the word, but you didn't practice it in private. You didn't really live this thing called Christianity. Charles Spurgeon, uh, one of my great heroes, he has a, has a quote about this. He says, let us never think that we have learned a doctrine until we have seen its fruit in our lives. You know, in a way, this is saying, don't, don't tell me you know the word if you don't live it. You need to practice what you preach. This is why all the time I talk about holiness and Christian living, because this is how Jesus talked about his people. If we're going to follow him, surprise, surprise, we got to follow him. And then it goes on to say Jesus gives an example of their failure to truly live the word. Verse 4. They tie up, he's talking about the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. You know what Jesus is telling them? And remember, this is Passover week. Jesus is saying the Pharisees have become so evil, they have become Pharaoh's. They're placing heavy loads on people. They're asking them to make bricks without straw. This is the Passover weekend. (laughs) They have become slave masters. And then verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries abroad and their fringes long. So uh, I can't stop at everything here. We certainly do, we do not have enough time. But all Jews were required from, from Numbers chapter 5 to wear tassels at the end of their robes. Um, well, the Pharisees, they wore tassels that were double in length. So they wore super tassels. They were super Jews. Uh, and Jesus is, go- Jesus is like, and your tassels. He's now going off on their clothes. Even your clothes annoy me. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Uh, and they love, verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feast. Can't you hear it? And they, and another thing, and the best seats in the synagogues, uh, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbis by others. Now next, Jesus is going to talk about titles, but we have to understand that Paul and, and, and John and other portions of, of Scripture, uh, they use titles for, uh, in the epistles for themselves. So what this must mean is not that we are not to, uh, uh, it's okay to be called mother or father. It's okay to be called pastor or doctor or, or whatever. The, what, what Jesus is getting at is we are not to make our, our lives, our, our chief identity in our titles. I was watching a documentary called What is a Woman? It just came out. I don't know if anyone saw that. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was unbelievable. Um, and not for kids, by the way. <laughs> and uh, he, th- this guy was having a discussion with this, um, with this therapist who was giving hormones to little kids to stop their puberty. And he just tried to have conversation with, with her. And she kept saying, well, I'm a pediatrician. I, I have a degree. She, she couldn't rely on her own intelligence and her own ideas. She had to lie on her title. And in a sense, that's what Jesus was dealing with. He would stump these people in regular dialogue, and they go, well, we studied in Jerusalem. You're just from backwater place Nazareth. And, you know, people can find their worth in their degrees. I have a friend who was a pastor uh, in Maryland, 
And uh, I was really proud of him for this. He retired as the lead pastor of the church after a few years of running it because he said being everyone's pastor became his idol. And he quit. He goes, guys, I'm in an idolatrous relationship with my relationship with you. And I, I think we need to pause here for a moment and ask, do we take pride in any title over that of Christian? Do I take more pride in being your pastor than I do being a Christian? Because if I do, it has become idolatrous. Do, do we take more pride in our profession than being a Christian? You know, for example, when we walk into a room, are we nurses or doctors or teachers or police officers or whatever first, or do we walk into the room representing first the kingdom of God? Jesus is warning us here, if we are not careful that we can make gods out of whatever we do or whoever we are or whatever our reputations or or titles may be. We have to be on guard. When we walk into our home, when we walk into our work, when we walk into church, we walk in first as a Christian. As a Christian. Then verse 8 But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father. And of course, John calls himself the father of the church. So um, that that has to be the spirit behind what Jesus is saying. Uh, Who is in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Ah, there it is. Whoever exalts himself will be humble, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You want to be great in God's eyes? I do. And I don't think that's a bad thing to desire. I want God to love me so much. That's a good thing. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Love your wife. (laughs) Love your husband. Love your family. Love the unlovable. There's plenty out there. (laughs) Take care of the needy. Have patience with people. You ever talk to a long talker? Someone that doesn't know when to just stop talking? (laughs) You know how much love it takes to sit there and just keep listening? We need love for these kinds of people. Love people. The warning here for us is if Jesus, if God Almighty can, can get on his hands and knees and wash people's feet, then who are we to be too proud to do anything for the Lord? Who are we to think we're better than anyone else? Yes, we are children of the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. But our Lord is a giving, serving, self-sacrificial God. And if we are to go, if we are going to be his children, we must act like his children and become humble servants too. Greatness is in service. And Jesus is warning against the pride of the Pharisees here who always expect to be served. Now, Jesus is about to start pronouncing woes. The word woe in the Greek means a few different things. It can be a call to attention, like pay attention. Uh, It can be used as a threat. It can imply judgment, like how dreadful this is going to be for you. Or it can be a curse. And here in Matthew and in Revelation, the woe implies curse. Jesus now is going to start pronouncing curses on the Pharisees, that horror and dread may not be coming, it's coming. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, 
For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. They're not only not following the kingdom of God, they're barring people from out of the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And so we just read the first of Jesus's eight woes against the religious hypocrite. Now, you don't need to know this, but I think it's so interesting. I'm going to tell you anyways. If you remember, Jesus began his teaching ministry all the way back in Matthew chapter 5. That's where we really get introduced to, to him preaching. And that's, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, opens with eight Beatitudes. And now at the end of Jesus' preaching ministry, Jesus gives eight woes that reflect, that in many ways reflect the eight Beatitudes from Matthew 5. So, for example, the first beatitude from Matthew 5 is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, our first woe from today's text is, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Do you see the connection? And there's lots of these. There's a lot of very interesting similarities here that just the Bible is a masterpiece. Now, for those of you with an ESV, uh, and I like the ESV, I think it's a good translation, uh, they omitted verse 14. If you notice, if you have an ESV, it goes 13, 15. Uh, they omitted verse 14 because uh, there, there's some discrepancy here. Some people think there's some old manuscripts from the first few centuries that don't have verse 14. And then there are some manuscripts that do have verse 14. So they leaned and went, it's probably not there. Myself, I do believe verse 14 is in the original. I do believe it's original to Matthew. So um, if you don't have... The ESV, you can just listen. If you have something else, it's probably in there. Uh, verse 14. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. You ever know someone like that? They go on and on. Anyways. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Wow. Jesus, after absolutely shredding their pride and character of the Pharisees to ribbons, then pronounced three curses, three woes upon them. Now, Jesus has made his point, hadn't he? Does he stop? Nope. <laughs> he keeps going. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. So Jesus doesn't even, he's not even calling them by their names, scribes and Pharisees. Now he's just insulting them. You're blind leaders. You claim to know the path. Huh, you don't even know what it looks like. You blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and
and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus tells a joke. (laughs) Isn't that great? And again, wow, right? Wouldn't he be canceled for this? Imagine if this was a Twitter thread. You know, you'd be like, oh, this guy. Then Jesus didn't just shoot their pride to bits. He's now adding dynamite, calling in airstrikes. We need napalm. Uh, and in these two O's, Jesus goes off on their hyper-focus of minutia. There's a term I love called majoring in minors. I mean, someone who puts great emphasis in something really small. So I... I um, I was watching a, a cooking show, surprise, surprise, about a decade ago, and it was like one of those chopped shows, and it was down to the final two contestants, and this guy had like three hours to make this, you know, awesome buku with, you know, truffiole, you know, all this stuff, and he's, he's, I know, right, so he's, he knows he needs garlic in the dish, so he goes to smash the garlic, and the other person is cooking up a storm, and he sees that the garlic has those little green sprigs in them, and he's like, oh no, I can't have green sprigs in my garlic. And so he spends a lot of time cutting the little sprigs, green sprigs of garlic out, and whoever his coach was, Gordon Ramsay or something, is like, you idiot! He starts, to, no one cares about the garlic sprigs! And he got hyper-focused, he, 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 he majored in a minor. And in today's story, Jesus tells a joke by saying that the Pharisees are worried about gnats in their food, yet they're swallowing whole camels. They have spent great time arguing about making oaths based upon certain foods on the altar. And they make sure that people are tithing their pepper and mint and cumin, all the while they have widows and orphans and the lame being crushed under their oppression. And this is a cautionary tale for us too. We can major in minors if we're not careful. I remember one time I was working with a group of pastor's wives once, and amongst them was this great emphasis, you could not say, oh my gosh, You couldn't use the word heck because it was too close to almost a curse word. And yet at the same time, I watched how they treated their staff like dirt. And as believers, we need to make sure we don't major in minors. That we choose to be passionate about some parts of God's word, but not others. To blow up the importance of one aspect of Christian life, but not another aspect of Christian life. Loved ones, the warning here is that we need to be on guard to make sure we're not unbalanced. Because an unbalanced theology, an unbalanced Christian life will lead to all kinds of craziness. Craziness, craziness. Like treating the people who are there to help you like dirt. While you're worried about, don't say, oh my goodness. <laughs> what? Verse 25. 
Jesus ain't done. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You noticing a theme here? (laughs) For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees. First, clean the inside of the cup of and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which means on the outside they were really clean, but the inside it was filled with death, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. Uh, And so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Our God is such a kind and generous and gentle, lovely God. But he's also very quick to strongly warn us. And here Jesus is warning us about inward purity. Paul talks about this when he says in Romans 7, for I know that, and this is the Apostle Paul, For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do uh, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul very clearly lays out that apart from the Spirit of God that is keeping your Christian walk intact, that in your own flesh, if God gave you your way, you would burn your Christian walk, your witness, your life to the ground if he gave your sin nature its way. And so any righteousness, any morality, any goodness you see coming from your life, that is a gift of God. But please understand, this is also why we need humility. Because our flesh is so quick to deceive and pervert, which is why we need to be absolutely dependent upon God to make sure that not only the outside of the cup is clean, but also the inside. Paul goes on to say a few verses later, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. God has created that delight. But I see in my member another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul lays out that within himself, there is a war. You ever feel that way sometimes? You ever, you ever, your mind (laughs) driving you nuts. Paul lays out that there was within himself a war between his flesh and what God was doing in him. And here is what we know as we look at the whole Bible, like the Pharisees, the outside of the cup, the outward life can look clean, but the inward life can be spiritually dead. And how does this happen? Pride. A Christian who leans upon their own faculties, upon their own resources, upon their own righteousness and ability to fight their own eternal, internal battles and sin actually are strengthening the very thing that they're trying to overcome. And how? Because as they lean upon their own might to fight their inward sin, they're actually feeding the very monster they're trying to kill their flesh. Their pride, their ego, and the way to have victory over your sin is to be humble enough 
to die to yourself enough to bring Christ into the battle to fight it for you. To fight our internal sins with humility before and dependence upon God. The Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what the context of the Sermon on the Mount is? This is what a Christian looks like. And how does the Sermon on the Mount begin? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit? It means to be absolutely dependent upon God for everything. God, I will not make it to heaven unless you do it. God, I will not beat my lust. I will not beat my whatever until you do it. Jesus is warning us here that no matter where we are in our Christian walk, that no matter how sparkly clean our outward life may appear, we can never outgrow our childlikeness, our dependence upon our Father. We cannot. Because the second we start leaning upon our own resources to fight spiritual battles, we will lose. Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. <laughs> this is a whole teaching. I Never mind. Verse 31. Thus you... I'm trying really hard not to stop. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. You say You say you wouldn't kill Elijah? You say you wouldn't kill Isaiah? You wouldn't kill the prophets? Oh, we're not like our fathers before us. We're more enlightened. We're modern men. (laughs) You just turned over John the Baptist. You're about to kill me. I'm about to fill this city with 3,000 new converts, and you're going to rile them up and start slaughtering them wholesale. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes for whom you kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues. You're going to bring people into your churches and brutalize them for women and kids to see. And persecute from town to town. So that you may come, uh, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachias, <laughs> from uh, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And the last woe, the last curse was a rebuke at how the Pharisees treated God's messengers and will continue to treat God's messengers. And so Jesus gives eight woes, the last one talking about persecution, as the eighth beatitude in Matthew 5 also talks about reward for persecution. So there's a lot of cool connections there. And then Jesus ends our sermon today, or text today, with verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing? 
and you were not willing. See, your house is left, is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus ends this speech with a prophecy uh, on the destruction of Jerusalem and a peek at his long-term plans of redemption. Now, <laughs> I've been a little sneaky this morning, family. Our study in Matthew 22 and 23 was actually to help us understand our real text in Revelation chapter 8. So we got about five minutes left. If you want to turn with me to Revelation 8, we're never getting out. We're never getting out. And just to play catch up as you turn there, so far in Revelation 8, God has released four judgments upon the unbelieving world. And each judgment, remember, begins with the sounding of a trumpet. Then verse 13, which is the end of the fourth trumpet, and then sets up the next three. So today's verse, we're going to read just verse 13, is both a conclusion and an introduction. And I wanted us to see how Jesus uses the woes so that we may understand the woes as they come in his revelation. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe. Woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We're actually done reading now. <laughs> the proclamation of this eagle, who I believe to be one of the four cherub, um, be, because if we remember from Revelation 4, the fourth cherub had the face like a what? Like an eagle in flight. So it makes sense that the fourth cherub with a face like an eagle, that we now we see on the fourth trumpet, a face like an eagle declaring something. So here is this cherub declaring the worst news imaginable, that after a world that has been burned, bloodied, frozen, and fired, that the worst is yet to come. And not just the worst, but a three-folded curse. A curse list lifted to the thrice degree, to the highest degree, that the worst, worst, worst is yet to come. So these woes are, as we read them over the next few chapters, are going to be deeply important. And, and, and here's why I structured today's teaching this way. Because as we look at the three woes of Revelation over the next few weeks, there is a sense that they are being poured out upon the end times unbelieving world. And before we, we jumped into that, I, I wanted to share how Jesus used these woes earlier in his earthly ministry as both a warning to the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, but also as a warning, a warning and an example to the church. Especially, especially as we looked at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, didn't we see the trajectory that the church can fall into the same exact trap that the Old Testament he, uh, Israelites did? Remember, Jesus at the end of Matthew 23 says, Jerusalem's coming down. What did we see in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove these, these woes. We have to understand our cautionary tales for us. So I want to close with one quick thought. After Jesus' eight woes in Matthew, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't go off on these Pharisees, ends with calling them a bunch of snakes and then storms out the door. What is the last thing he does? He laments. Maybe cries. He says, oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And it's not that Jesus is not willing to save Jerusalem. It's that the leaders of Jerusalem are not willing And so Jesus is full of sorrow and it's so important as God's people that we see God's warnings and woes and that we see the heart behind it. That yes, God, Jesus gets angry. Jesus gets frustrated. God hates sin. He hates it. And he hates it so much, he often gives rebukes and sometimes calls people snakes and occasionally flips over tables. But we also can't forget that the the frustration, the anger that God has all throughout the Bible towards wickedness and death and evil and and, and lust and adultery and, and, and rage comes from a fatherly heart. What good father wants to see their children make bad decisions? These things come from a a brotherly, a husbandly, a, a jealously loving heart. God does not want people in hell. Jesus wants to keep people out of hell so desperately he sent his only begotten son to keep people out of hell. And like the woes in both Matthew and Revelation, Jesus knows justice must come. Our God is a good God, which means he's a God of justice. And justice must come to take care of evil. Jesus knows justice has to come. But also Jesus is hoping that the wicked that the wicked would repent and turn to him. The very last thing Jesus says in our Matthew text is, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This incredibly, can you think of any other portion of scripture where Jesus goes off like this? I can't. This incredibly harsh and hard passage ends with a prophecy, a prophecy about the repentance of the Jewish people. This is what we have to see about God's heart here, family. The judgment has not yet even come. And his eyes are already on the horizon, looking forward to the glorious day when the Jewish people declare that Jesus is Lord. And in Revelation, by the end of the second woe in chapter 9, Jesus reveals this hope. All of a sudden, at the end of Revelation 9, we start reading about repentance, the desire. The desire of our God is always to see sinners saved. COVID-19, you know God could have stopped that? Do you think he went, ah, I can't stop this one, fellas, too viral? No. Why did God allow it then? To strengthen the church? To see sinners saved. Even as he is pronouncing and carrying out these woes, his heart is always set to please come to me. Jesus doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to be saved. And so as we close amongst all of these warnings in Revelation and Matthew and the Bible, throughout all of these curses and all of these woes that we're about to read, I hope you can see I hope you can see the heart that is behind them, that our God is a loving God. And his anger arises out of his desire to see the best for people. 
If someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night to hurt your family, what's your course of action to be? Well, God bless you. You better get angry. You better rage and roar and grab a gun because love demands that you protect your family. And here we see God, he's really loud here. He, He says a lot of hard things and it's because he loves people. He's sick of the foolishness. He's sick of the evil. His anger arises out of his desire to see the best for people. And what's that? Eternal life. And for us, when we have sin in our lives, when we're being hypocrites, when we're neglecting majors for minors, when we're mistreating others, uh, the, the discipline we may receive. You know, the Bible tells us the Lord disciplines a child he loves. God spanks sometimes. You know why he spanks you? Because he loves you. Today's Pentecost Sunday, the day that the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. You know what the first ministry of the Holy Spirit is, or one of them? Conviction. You ever do something you shouldn't do, and then you're like, oh, why did I do that? That's a gift from God. And the frustration God has with you, because you keep, like Romans 7, you can feel Paul's frustration, Romans 7, when you keep doing that same stupid, sinful thing over and over again, you think you're frustrated. God's really frustrated. But it comes from a loving heart. John 3.16, I lean on this verse a lot because it's so foundational that God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son. Our God is a God of expression. It wasn't that that God so loved the world that he watched. The God so loved the world that he waited for the world to bail itself out. No, his love is active. His love is not quiet. Like, Jesus, do we have to be so intense here? No, yes, I do. Do you see with that Texas shooting, that school the other day? I'm still mad about it. Do you see that mother trying to break into the school to stop the shooter? Like, she didn't have a weapon. That's love. That's what love does. It goes, enough. And that's our Lord's love. It's not quiet. It's not passive. It's not docile. It's crazy storm the school love. And it pierces and it jostles and it's loud and it's bold and it speaks up. Not even the harshest words in our Bible come from a good and merciful and loving God who ultimately desires to see souls saved. And so uh, let's, let's wrap up today. And I, I just want to encourage you again, as we march through these difficult passages that we understand and see God's heart. He wants to see sinners saved. Let's pray. God, we, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We thank you for this, um, <laughs> for recording these things down for the church. We thank you that you love us so much, God, that you are willing to jostle us. <laughs> that you are not willing to let us stay stuck in our sins. And God, we ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon this church. God, that you would not only help us to know the word, but that we may live the word. That your spirit, God, would not only make us aware of sin, but would convict us of sin. And God, if there are things in our lives, if we are being hypocrites in any regard, God, we desire to hear them from you now rather than before Judgment Day. 
Please, God, jostle us where we need to be jostled. And God, we thank you that you are not like us, that (laughs) your ways are not our ways. Because, Lord, you hang in there with us. You love us far longer than I think we even love ourselves sometimes. And so we, we thank you for who you are and how you operate. We ask that you would bless us mightily. If anyone needs prayer, we ask that someone would have courage to stand up and come receive prayer with our prayer team up here by me. Um, God, just, just bless this church. We do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary Baltimore. Please keep in touch. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. Finally, if you're unable to come see us in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Sermon Podcast.